If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to focus in on verses 7 through 10, but I'll begin to give us some context beginning in verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. The main question this morning that I want us to consider is this. Who do you see? Who do you see this last week? Did you see more of yourself and your sin? Or did you see more of Christ? Where were your eyes looking? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being tr transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As Christians, as we behold Christ, we're conformed into His image. And yet so often we look somewhere else as we consider who we really are. Some sermons can be really convicting. And hopefully those sermons are never leave you without the grace of Christ. As we, as we work through a book of the Bible, we take the text as they come. This sermon, this text is like lavish comfort and, and grace that is put before us for us to consider. Christ is put before us to treasure. One of the images that comes to my mind when I ask the question, who do you see or what are you thinking about? That's going to determine what you worship. I think of like a bull 
elk. One of the things they do is they wallow in kind of a dugout low spot. A lot of times there's uh, some water in there that it's not water that moves, it's water that gets smelly. And while they're wallowing, they're actually urinating everywhere, getting their scent everywhere. But they'll actually, these big animals, they'll lay down in it and rub in it. Or if you've ever had a dog and you've taken them out for a walk and all of a sudden there's something dead, like a dead squirrel, what do they do? They do exactly what you hope they won't do. They go, they don't just sniff it, they like pile drive their shoulder into it and rub all around. And as Christians... Redeemed by Christ. Christ on one side, the risen Savior over here, all your past sins over here. All your remaining flesh that you're supposed to put to death over here. And so often, we spend our time. We have a choice. We have a choice where we're going to look and where we're going to go. And so often, we come over here and we just start counting our trespasses and our sins and our past failures. And certain things come up and they bring to mind all these things. And then we begin to wallow in our sin. We begin to wallow in the dying flesh. In Galatians, Paul describes the Christian as the person, when, when you trusted in Christ, you nailed your old self to the cross. But crucifixion is a slow death. So as this old man is dying over here, and becoming to stink as these wounds are dying, we'll come over to this old man, and we will focus here, and we'll think here. And all the while, there's a new man that is alive. There's a new man that Christ has died for. There's a redeemer. And my question is, who do you see? Because who you see, according to Paul, will determine your progress in being conformed into that image. And so as we come to a text that, if we have to admit, we're not worthy of, that we can gaze on these truths and these realities, and yet God has given them to us. Glory in the fact that you are blessed in the beloved. Glory in the incomprehensible blessing of the beloved. Where do we get this? Look at Verse 6, 
So remember, this is how this text flows. He begins in the past. That God predestined you, Christian, before the foundation of the earth. He set his intimate love on you before you were ever created. And now it turns to the present tense. Now it turns to the present tense in verse 6. It says, in him we have redemption. Now, and then next week we're going to see the inheritance that is guaranteed to be ours. We know it because of the spirit given to us, but we'll look at the inheritance that's coming next week. But what we see in verse 6, it says, to the praise of his glory, glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. He's blessed us in the beloved. Glory in the fact that you are blessed in the beloved. These words, you got to let your mind think. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul has said, we have in Christ. And now we've been blessed in the one who is loved by the Father. And that's Christ. And when we're found in Christ, imagine what the Father's love is for Christ. Imagine what that love is for Christ. And yet Paul starts Romans, he says, to those in Rome who are loved by God. We're called the beloved. We've been blessed by the one who is loved and we're found in him. The Father loves us the same way. One of the most amazing texts in the Bible, I think, is found in the high priestly prayer in John 17. <laughs> I mean, your mind just spins. You read it over and over again. You're trying to grasp what Jesus is praying. So right before he goes to the cross, in verse 22 of John 17, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So he's talking about this Trinitarian unity his oneness with the Father, that they may be one that way so that the world may know that you sent me, now get this, and love them as even as you love me. Okay, I believe the Father loves me in Christ. Do I believe that he loves me even as he loved Christ? Do you believe that? I guarantee you, if you wallow over here and you forget Christ over here, there's no way you'll believe that. There's no way you'll believe that God the Father can love you even as he loves the Son. And so we're blessed in the Beloved, and that leads us into our text, in him, in the Beloved. So whenever we see in him, it's referring to our union with Christ. Every good thing we ever have, ha have had, or ever will have, every good thing God has ever done for us, he's done for us 
in Christ. He hasn't done anything for us outside of the grace of Christ. So let's look at one of these things. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. The first thing I want you to see is to glory in your Redeemer. And when I say glory, I mean worship. I mean have your heart overflow with joy and worship and excitement in light of who your Redeemer is. Glory in your Redeemer, not in you. Don't focus on you. This is what we do. We sit in front of mirrors and we're so concerned about what I look like. It's miserable to, you know, here's where Piper says there's no mirrors in heaven. (laughs) Heaven's going to be glorious. We're not going to sit there and be obsessed with ourselves. We're going to be obsessed with Christ. We're not going to be concerned with what others think of me and what I think of me as I look in a mirror because we're not going to be focused on us. Glory in your Redeemer. Christian, remember that your salvation is a person. Not merely a set of truths and doctrines. He is the embodiment of truth. That's true. All knowledge and wisdom is bound up in Christ. That's true. But Jesus is a person. There's the person of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. And your Redeemer is not a set of truths. It's not a way of life. It's not a religious system. Your Redeemer is the Son of God become flesh, who's become like us. He's become like his brothers in every aspect except sin. Our Redeemer is a spotless lamb who's never sinned. He's the only one who is whole. He took on the temptation that Satan put on Adam in a perfect garden with perfect fellowship with the Father, and Adam was deceived, and Eve was deceived. And yet Christ, who's put in the wilderness without food for 40 days, withstands every one of Satan's attacks. He's the better Adam. He's the only one that's whole. He's the only one who's never sinned. And it's in him, the Redeemer, we have redemption through his blood. Here's one, here's, here's the truth I want you to see. When Jesus died for you, he didn't just die for a sea of sinners. 
whom he doesn't know, who he doesn't know their name. He doesn't know them intimately. In fact, in Isaiah 53, that describes Jesus' death on the cross, at the end of this passage, he says, in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. <laughs> he's on the cross, but he's going to be satisfied with his work. And then it says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus, by his knowledge shall he make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Which means when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't know generally about your sins. But it was with knowledge he went to the cross of every one of your sins. Everything you ever have done and ever will do, Jesus didn't go to the cross and say, I'm going to die for sinners, and then later say, whoa, I didn't know it was going to look like that. But the scripture says he died with knowledge. That's how he accounted us righteous. He wasn't just tricked by the Father to save people that turned out to be way worse than he thought. So for the glory in our Redeemer, let's glory in our redemption. Apollo Lutro, our apolutrosis, is the word for redemption. It has the idea of paying a ransom price to free a slave. That's what the word means. At this time, there were six million slaves in the Roman Empire. They knew what slavery looked like. They know, knew what it was like to be owned by a master. Some of those masters might have been good masters. Other masters might have been evil masters. I think the most evil master there is, the most evil slave owner there could be, the most uh, evil master that binds its victims, I think, is the master that brainwashes and deceives their victims into thinking they're good and that he has their best interest in mind. You know, the sex trafficking signs we see all around and in these bathrooms. You know, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you need help, call this number. And I just think, you know, it's not like they're in a cage. They actually can go in a public bathroom, which means they could get to a phone, which means so often... They're willingly bound because they think the best life they can have is in that situation. The master has deceived them that they need to stay in this slavery. And the slavery that we are in, that Christ came to redeem us from, 
is slavery to sin. And sin is an evil master that always promises life, but delivers death. It deceives those who are held captive by it. In fact, they glory in it. They love it. They love this master. This is what they want in their life. This is what they plan in their beds. How can I get away with this sin? How can I get away with that sin? How can I plan this party next weekend where I can do these things? Sin is our captor. John 8, 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sins is a slave to sin, is a slave to it. Romans 7, 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Ephesians 2, we looked at this last couple weeks. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So you're a walking dead person. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of You see how it sounds like master language? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, a non-believer is mastered by every sinful passion that comes upon them. They just can't help it. They just gotta be obedient to the passion It's the worst type of slavery. It's the type of slavery that leads not only to physical death, but it leads to spiritual death in hell, separation from God. Ephesians 2.12 says this, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what it's like to be a slave to sin, having no hope and without God in the world. Later in Ephesians, in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Ignorant, hard-hearted. Proverbs 11.6 says, The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lusts. Sin is like a captor. And the treacherous are taken captive by their own lusts. Galatians 1.3 says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. We need to be delivered out of a present evil age, out of a present evil heart. In order to glory in our redemption, we got to remember what we're redeemed from. Do we not? As slaves, are in our redemption, you got to look at the role you play, all right? What role do we play in redemption? We're, we provide our sin. <laughs> That's what we provide in our role in redemption. We provide our sin in our slavery, uh, slavery to it, and Christ comes as the Redeemer. What was the price for our redemption? Look at what it says. In him we have redemption through his blood. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The price is blood. The writer of Hebrews fleshes this out for us. Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copy of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So you have the earthly temple and, and the earthly representations of God. And it was right that they used blood to represent the covering of their sin in order to come into the presence of God. But he's saying, let's not talk about the copies anymore. Let's not talk about the tabernacle. Let's talk about going into the throne room of God. What sort of blood do we need in order to be made clean, in order to enter into the presence before Him? Because death is the payment. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Physical death, spiritual death. Separation, your spirit separates from your body, your soul separates from Christ. One's the first death, the other's the second death. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus' death, the blood that was shed, was a substitutionary death. This is Christianity. This is what the gospel's all about. You do not get into heaven because of anything in and of yourself. 
but because of one who stood in your stead place, was a substitute for you. You deserve death, but he took the death. Hebrews 10.1 says, For since the law... Um, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But, these sacrifice, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of uh, bulls and goats to take away sins. Here's what he's saying. Every year, your high priest has to offer blood on the day of atonement. Every year he does it, you're reminded of your sins that year. Over and over and over again. If the blood of bulls and goats could take away your sin, then you would just walk into the temple next year. Not worry about it. You walk right into the holies of holies. But they wouldn't. And the fact that they were repeated proved that the blood of bulls and goats were not going to be the answer. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, verse 5 of, of Hebrews 10, when Christ came into the world, he said... And he quotes Psalm 40, verses beginning, beginning in verse 6. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. The sacrifices and offerings are but a shadow. That's not what God ultimately desired. God prepared a body. God prepared blood that doesn't come from a bull and doesn't come from a goat, but that comes from a man because man has sinned. Peter, 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. He's talking about a ransom, so he's talking about a price but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That was the price. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came, what did he come for? To give his life as a ransom for many. There's a price to be paid to purchase slaves so that they can be free and redeemed. The song we sang this morning, Revelation 5, is he worthy? <laughs> Listen to this. Revelation 5, 8. When they had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Okay, you grab the scrolls. If you can't break the seals of the scrolls, the rest of human history can't play out and God's plan cannot come to fruition. And there's nobody that can open them until the lamb comes. And the lamb 
grabs the scrolls? Is there really going to be a new people of God? And will it really be God's kingdom that lasts forever? Is it going to happen? Is the question. And what we see is they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Do you see your redemption? Do you see a redeemer? Do you see the cost? He brought payment, and the payment was his own blood. And as he does that, he opens the seals. He fulfills God's plan for the rest of history. Do you realize that a non-believer has no purpose in the world? They have no idea what this world's about. They have no idea why they're alive. They have no idea why they're suffering. They have they just have to make up fantasies to get through life. And because we have a Redeemer, we can know what He's done now and what He's done in the future. So what are we looking at? You're looking at the new man redeemed by Christ? You're looking at Christ so you can be conformed into His image? Or are you wallowing? as though somehow our Redeemer failed. All right, let's glory now in your relief in redemption. All right, look at what he says. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Look at the results of our redemption. Look at the relief that is taken off the slaves. As we do this, Um, when, we, when we look at the relief, someone might say, well, this seems man-centered. We're just looking at the results of what he's done for us. No, not when it's connected to the Redeemer and to the Redeemer's work. Now when we glory in the relief, we can glory in the relief and not have to feel guilty about it because it wasn't worked by us. We're not the ones who worked uh, our relief. This word forgiveness, aphison, it means pardon or liberty. It, it can be translated release or freedom. The result of redemption is being released from our captivity to sin and from the punishment of sin. Matthew 26, 28 says, Jesus said, for this is 
the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You know, one of the images in the Old Testament that I know you've heard about, but I think you need to know in, in, in attachment to this word forgiveness is when they would take the two goats, Leviticus 16.7 tells us, uh, it says, Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. They would slay it. They would kill it. But the other goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent into the wilderness to Azazel. So the second goat, they would, the, the high priest would confess the sins of Israel on the goat and they would walk the goat deep, deep, deep into the wilderness where there's no possible way that goat will ever find its way back. That's the picture. It's going to die out there. It's never going to find its way back. This word forgiveness has this idea that it is gone that far. I want to read this John MacArthur quote that was so encouraging. He says, it is tragic that many Christians are depressed about their shortcomings and wrongdoing, thinking and acting as if God still holds their sins against them, forgetting that, uh, forgetting that because God has taken their sins upon himself, they are separated from those sins as far as the east is from the west. The goat's never coming back. Those sins are gone. And we, we go, we try to find them again, and we wallow over here, and we want to build our identity based off all of our failures and, and throw a pity party for ourselves. But they're not coming back. Not in reality, they're not. They're far as the east is from the West, so that Hebrews 10 can be true. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, this is what the blood of Jesus should do, should give you confidence by the new and living way that he opened, through, uh, opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. That's how God wants you to draw near to him. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So if you see you and you don't see the blood, then you're not going to walk into his presence with confidence. You're going to try to clean yourself up. You'll stay over here. You'll try to work your own 
redemption. But if you see his blood, and you see the Redeemer, and you see that his work is perfect, and that his work deals with all this sin over here, then you can walk into the presence of God because he's faithful. That's what the text says. Because he did the work. And when he did the work, he did it perfectly. And he did it on behalf of sinners. In Shakespeare's King Richard III, the king laments, he says, my conscience has a thousand so, um, uh, oh, how do you say that word? Um, servile tongues. My conscience has a thousand servile tongues, and every tongue brings a servile tale, and every tale condemns me for a villain. Here's what MacArthur says that's not true for a Christian. That's not true for a Christian. Now, you might do that, Christian, but it's not true. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Is that true or is that not true? It's true. You are really free from your sins, and you really are not the old man. You're the new man. And next week, your mind's going to be blown as we look at the inheritance where you see Christ risen up to the right hand of God, and you are going to be seated with him in the heavenly places, sitting on that throne of authority. And you say, well, this sounds like a fantasy. Well, it's not. That's what's true. That's what's true. I don't care what your heart tells you. Your heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? I don't care what the devil says to you. You point him to the blood, and then you ask yourself, did the blood work or did it not work? Are God's promises true or are they not true? Is 1 John 2, 12 true? I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He doesn't say, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven because you're doing pretty good. He says that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. His death was a pleasing aroma to God the Father. You don't think it's going to work? He does it for his own name's sake. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 2.13, you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. Are you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh? God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. All our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them 
in him. In him. We got one more John MacArthur quote. There's too many, too much good in his commentary this week, but you got to hear this. Here's what he says. It almost sounds wrong. Because God accepts every believer as he accepts his own son, every believer ought to accept himself the same way. Sounds wrong, doesn't it? I'll say it again. Because God accepts every believer as he accepts his own son, every believer ought to accept himself the same way. He goes on to say, we do not accept ourselves for what we are in and of ourselves any more than God accepts us for that reason. We accept ourselves as forgiven and as righteous because that's what God himself declares us to be. To think otherwise is not a sign of humility, but arrogance. Because to think otherwise is to put our own judgment over God's word and belittle the redemption price paid for us by his beloved son. A Christian, denigrate, or a Christian who denigrates himself and doubts the fullness of God's forgiveness denies the work of God and denigrates a child of God. If we matter to God, then we certainly ought to matter to ourselves. It's false humility. We actually call his work into question as we do the pity party and say, yeah, I'm no good, I'm never going to. You know the song, His Mercy is More? Okay, we're at, let, let's just read the end of the text. Glory in your role. I mean, we're just going to have a minute to show this. But look at how he forgives you according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace. One illustration. If Elon Musk was here this morning and he was going to give to the church out of his riches, you know, who knows? He could give $50,000 check in the offering. But if Elon Musk showed up today and he gave according to his riches, Now we're in trouble. Now we need a full-time person just to figure out how to spend the money in a way that would glorify God, right? Well, how did he forgive you? Did, did Christ's forgiveness, it's like, oh, there's sins going high. I'm just, I'm just going to get enough grace. You finally get over that last sin just barely. Is that how he? No, according to the riches of his grace. That's how he forgives you. His mercy is more way higher than your sins. You, you really think you're going to out the grace of Christ? That you're going to be the one that does that? According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. He gives us knowledge of spiritual things along with the forgiveness and then look at this, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. You realize your redemption is a part of a plan and that God has a plan. And if God has a plan, then God has a purpose. And 
If God has a purpose and you're involved in that purpose, then your life has a purpose. You realize? The Christian has that. No one else does. It's all a sham. Anything else someone has is a fantasy they made up. If you, if you want to hear, I have it somewhere in here. Or at least I thought I did. Oh yeah, the French philosopher Andre Morois says, here's a, his quote, the universe is indifferent. Who created it? Why are we on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea, and I'm convinced, convinced that no one else has the least idea. Well, he's wrong. There's some whom the veil's been lifted up, and they've seen their Savior. They've seen their Creator. They've seen the mighty work that he's worked on their behalf, and they're told about an inheritance that's coming, a kingdom that's coming, where everything is united in Christ. 